Welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. I'm really happy to welcome Steve Kokinas, CEO of Algorand. Algorand describes itself as being able to support traditional finance and decentralized financial businesses to embrace the world of frictionless finance, and also as the first pure proof-of-stake blockchain platform, and we'll get into a little bit about what that means later. Um, Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jamie. It's great to be here. So some of the reasons why I wanted you on the show were prior to Algorand, you're a seasoned entrepreneur. You have taken a company public. You've exited two. I believe the one prior to Algorand uh, you founded and ran for 14 years, which is longer than most marriages. So, uh, so well done. And you were effectively employee number one to a very technical founder um, and Algorand you know, span out of a a research paper, and I think that's a really interesting dimension to how a startup emerges in Web3. And I believe potentially you're one of the last big major layer ones to come out in the space. So uh, I think it's going to be interesting to understand the advantages to being relatively late in the game and, and how you've kind of capitalized upon those. Um, yeah. So really looking forward to having you on the show. Likewise, ex- excited to be here. And uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of ground to cover for sure. It's a, we have a lot of interesting things going on. So to just try and summarize your background, if you go through your LinkedIn profile, there's a lot there. But fortunately, as I said, uh, in some of the previous roles, you've had comparatively long stints there, unusually long stints in terms of the periods from founding all the way through to being CEO and chair. So originally you started with a bachelor's degree in economics at McGill University in uh, graduating in 98. Yeah, it seems like a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure. And you then went straight into founding Web Yes Inc., is that right? Yeah, well, actually, I started it while I was in school. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of parallels. I know it's for people who are at it today, uh, but there's a lot of parallels in the early days of the Internet to the early days of, of crypto. And, you know, interestingly, if you if you go back 20 years or a little bit more these days, you know, the early days of the Internet were very anti-commercial. It was very libertarian. Uh, decentralization and decentralized networks were a big something that was like a very big you know, featured part of it. Um, and, you know, the web was really about giving people the power to self-publish when, it, you know, really it was it was a very small number of media outlets. And so it was a fascinating time. But uh, yeah, I, I started uh, WebBS when I was 19. We were one of the first internet infrastructure companies and, you know, ultimately built that up and, and sold it. Uh, so it was a real adventure. But it was, you know, I think one of the learnings back then that it's not always the first movers in a new market that are the ones that build generationally meaningful companies. I think if you know you look at the internet days, Google came quite late actually, 
but really had the benefit of being able to see what the problems were in the first wave of tech and, you know, really solve the problem the right way. And I think there's some similarities to that in kind of the Web3 space for sure. Yeah, and of course, definitely benefit to learn on somebody else's book. So WebYes Inc. was doing control panels, application management. Uh, I believe you had like 10 data centers and really you were kind of supporting very early stage e-commerce vendors and, and stuff like that. 2001, you co-founded the second startup, which was, was that 6B? Logic. Yeah, right. Okay. Six Blade Logic. And that was also data centers, automated solutions for an enterprise segment, right? Yeah, I think the way to think about that is, you know, after getting kind of several years into the internet infrastructure side of things, you know, we realized that you couldn't continue to grow by just, you know, throwing people at the problem. And, you know, as we started to look really carefully at what tools existed out there, found there weren't a lot of good ones to really help automate day-to-day operations of of data centers and servers and applications. Um, And, you know, that's sort of what led to the idea there. So it was was a pretty logical step from the infrastructure side of things. Um, And in the lot of ways it was really you know kind of the early beginnings of what what morphed into you know cloud infrastructure that people use today and so you had clients like uh, GE, Time Warner, Microsoft, Cable and Wireless, Walmart, etc. And that company went public in 2007 and was acquired in 2008 for 800 million. So congratulations, mm-hmm. that's uh, not not bad. But that was a 16 year stint, right? So I mean, if you think about that in the no, that was like 2001 to I want to say 2007, you know, eight, something like that. Okay, right. But still, I guess at a formative part of the internet coming out of 2000, of course, like during, during, during the bubble. Then 2017, is that right? Uh, you're at Fuse? Uh, no. So, okay. So there's a little bit of a confusing story there. So uh, Fuse is originally a company called Thinking Phones, uh, which we started in, uh, I guess, late 2006, something like that. And grew that over, you know, around a decade. Um, and then we acquired Fuse and then uh, rebranded the company as Fuse because you know, we thought it was a little bit more modern, easier to remember name. Um, and they had had some, a brand in the market, but that's, it was a sort of one, that's one continuous um, thing. And, you know, Fuse is a pretty good size uh, business today. It's, you know, over 100 million in revenue and um, doing quite well. And you're still chairman there, as I understand it. So you found, founded it and went all the way through to chairmanship. I went through and I'm, yeah, I'm still on the board and that's been an adventure for sure. It's gone through a lot of phases, you know, and I think seeing, you know, companies grow from something, you know, pretty small and kind of moving through the different phases and and scaling was a real learning learning experience for sure. So uh, then, as I said, you were brought in in 2018. So Algorand was founded in 2017 by uh, Silvio Micali. Did I pronounce the surname right? Yep. Great. As much as I'm going to do for a Brit anyway. And uh, he brought you in a year later as CEO, as kind of the first uh, senior hire. So Silvio oversees the research, the theory, security, and and finance component. Uh, And of course, you're presumably there to to help scale this organization and the commercial component to it, to the extent that you've done with other ventures. But it'd be good to understand how did all that start? So as I understand it, your interest in this space predated Algorand and even knowing Silvio. And it was a connection that was made through Union Square Ventures when you were kind of looking for people to collaborate with, connect with. It was recommended that I think you were recommended to one another. But how did that come about? Yeah, well, actually, you know, two seed investors were Pillar and, and Union Square Ventures. And Jamie Goldstein at Pillar knew Silvio quite well. And the Union Square guys knew him as well. You know, but I had really been... I was introduced to sort of Bitcoin by a friend who 
really felt like I should take a look at the crypto space. And when I finally had a little bit of time on my hands, started digging into it a little bit more. You know, I had some miners running with my kids in the basement of my house and um, this kind of thing, just to learn about the tech and understand it. You know, but the more I learned, you know, the more I felt it was a really fascinating space that had, you know, really... the same level of dynamism or similar anyway uh, that I saw in early days of the internet. And that's the first time I had really seen anything like it in, you know, the 20 years between. And I naturally had sort of originally gravitated towards ideas around, you know, sort of tokenization of assets um, that seemed to be, you know, definitely uh, something that really you could build a business around and wrap your head around. But, you know, Jamie, and then, you know, folks at USV suggested that if, to do that, you know, Sylvia was sort of somebody worth talking to. And I think, you know, what Sylvia undertook with Algorand was really something that, you know, only a handful of people could could do, which is to take a step back from what Bitcoin represented and look at what was innovative, but also think about if you were going to have decentralized systems and digital money that truly everybody in the world could use um, on one platform, you know, what would the tech have to look like? What hard computer science problems needed to be solved? And Silvio, along with, you know, a group of really amazing researchers really sat down and it's, it's one of the few truly ground up solutions that isn't derivative from, you know, any existing blockchain that uh, that's out there today. And so I think the results have been, uh, been pretty good. But yes, originally Silvio released an Algorand paper, basically a white paper describing, you know, the technology that they come up with presented that at you know variety of academic conferences, got a lot of interest. There's a lot of question as to whether it could really be implemented because the theory is quite complex. And a different group at MIT decided to take up that challenge, uh, implemented it, published their own scientific paper on the results of the implementation and you know proved that the theory held up in you know actual reality. You know, from there Silvio decided to to spin things out. So I actually ended up co- uh, co-investing with Pillar and and Union Square in the first round and, and joined the board and then decided to come on full time a little bit later. Yeah, and maybe for context for the listeners, Silvio is world renowned really for his work in cryptography also zero knowledge and some other things that uh, I don't fully uh, understand, but certainly looking at how you secure <laughs> protocols, mechanism design, I believe he's co-inventor of probabilistic encryption, some zero knowledge proofs, um, verifiable uh, random functions, and some some kind of core primitives in the context of cryptography. He's also a Turing award winner, as well as um, several other things. So when you read that paper, did it reaffirm a direction that you were already thinking about? Somebody that had seen the first two cycles of the web, did it feel like a step change, something that you would understand as Web3? Or how, how did you kind of... For me, uh, I think, you know, that it sort of uh, caused me to take a step back. And, and you know, I, what I realized is, um, you know, it really is the case that the sort of layer one, like, bandwidth and protocols and infrastructure didn't exist in the way that it was going to be needed if like high scale applications uh, were going to be deployed on, on public networks. And you know, I think my observation is that, you know, over time, it's it's like almost always been in large tech waves that the public networks went out over private ones. And I think we saw that in the internet, we saw that in cloud computing with Amazon and others. And, you know, I think we're, we're seeing the same thing play out a little bit uh, on this side. But, you know, I felt that, you know, Silvio's work was fascinating. Uh, he's you know, an amazing um, thinker and problem solver. And, you know, also, 
I think the fact that he's, you know, in all respects, you know, one of the founders of modern cryptography carries, you know, a lot of weight in the market. He's, he's very well known. And, uh, you know, that was one of the things to me also was that I think there was a real need in the space for, you know, a organization or a group of people to show up that could engender some confidence that uh, they could deliver technology and, you know, build community and, and get people excited about the platform. And, you know, nothing uh, that I've seen since then has diminished my enthusiasm any. So it's, it's been uh, a fun ride for sure. It sounds like a fortuitous meeting for, for both of you. How does that working practice, you know, work between a very academic, technical founder and yourself, who's, you know, very kind of commercial entrepreneur, especially in the context of getting things to market? Because from the outside, it looks like you've shipped you know, pretty quickly, you've iterated pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And what I found in the past dealing with very technical founders is they sometimes over-engineer or over-optimize to, to try to find perfect solutions. And so how do, you, how do you have that working relationship and then how do you balance the tension between shipping and, you know, perfection? Well, I think perfection is the enemy of the good in a lot of cases. So, you know, we try to live by that motto a bit. You know, definitely we have uh, very bright people, but I think the company is a really good balance between people that come more from the research end of, of things and people who come from the practical end. And, you know, I, I think what we found is it's not that hard to, you know, meet in the middle. And I think um, one of the benefits of having, you know, an amazing research team is that uh, they're good at solving all sorts of problems, uh, not just, you know, coming up with new technical theory. And, you know, I think at the same time, you know, there's mutual respect that, you know, we've just seen a lot of things in building businesses. And, you know, sometimes you have to, you know, decide the right way forward and, you know, iterate from there. So I I think it's been, um, you know, a really good working relationship on both sides. I think it is the fact that we've been able to deliver technology that not very many groups, irrespective of crypto, but, you know, just in relative to the quality of computer science we're doing are able to do at all. Uh, And the fact that we've been able to, you know, have releases on a regular schedule and continue to innovate and, you know, see what the what the market is uh, sort of doing with the protocol and come up with new ideas as a result, I think are all really positive. So, uh, you know, I, I think part of it is, you know, every company is a little bit different. You know, company culture is a reflection of the people who are there. And... I think for us, we we definitely have a strong academic heritage, and we try to use that to its its you know fullest benefit. And at the same time, we have a lot of strong folks, you know, like Sean Ford, our COO, was managing a billion dollar business or helping manage a billion dollar business before he came to Algorand. And I think if you look, not only is our research team very um, strong and experienced, but the business team is quite experienced as well. And I think that helps um, because people have you know have conviction, know kind of how to set things up, understand kind of seeing problems as they come up, and. Um, you know, all in all, we aren't without our problems. Every every growing company is, but uh, I think we've been able to to manage things quite well and uh, and make a lot of progress. So operationally, is the R and D team separate and distinct from, say, the commercial and product team? Uh, often in Web three, you have this strange mix of a nonprofit foundation that does a lot of the R and D work, and then you have like one or several commercial entities. How do you structure Algorand? Sure. Well, the Algorand Foundation, uh, which is based in Singapore, is responsible for the release of the Algo, our token. And, you know, really they take on a lot of the role of of community building, you know, helping with the grant process for developers and, you know, encouraging uh, encouraging people to come in and take a look at the platform. Algorand Inc., which is, you know, a Boston-based business, we're focused on 
you know, research, core technology development, um, and, you know, releasing open source code that, you know, we hope gets included in the protocol. And so that's, that's how we've sort of done that. Now, as the project grows, there's many other people who are developing um, solutions, you know, uh, that are needed, you know, but I, I think if you look at sort of the Linux example, that's one that we, we think about where, you know, even today, you know, Linus Torvald still oversees the kernel releases. And I, so I think we kind of think of the consensus protocol a little bit like that, where, you know, we hope there's many, many people contributing different elements um, to the platform and that, you know, ultimately, you know, it becomes kind of a, a, an ecosystem of applications. But, you know, there's probably the core kind of very detailed computer science areas that, that at least for now, um, you know, we're happy to keep contributing toward. And, and I know you referenced Singapore there. Now, often in the past, that has been a case of regulatory arbitrage, but you guys do really seem very committed to Asia. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. I know you've just launched, uh, I think it's an accelerator or um, um, some activity around generating a genuine ecosystem in, in For sure. Asia. Yeah, we just had an event uh, this morning um, that uh, was broadcast from Hong Kong. Right. So you claim to have solved the blockchain trilemma. Um, could you just explain that at a high level, why that's important, how you've done it in layman terms that's accessible, and what trade-offs, if any, have to be made outside of that trilemma to, to achieve it? Well, we have solved it, so I think that's that's pretty good. Um, just to, to give everybody sort of a high-level view of what that is, you know, Vitalik Buterin sort of posed a theory that was sort of coined the blockchain trilemma, which is that you can pick two out of scalability, security, or decentralization. And, you know, Silvio felt was that, you know, those limitations were really the result of, of the need for, you know, new fundamental computer science uh, that, that, you know, especially address some of the distributed computing issues. And if you look at, you know, most of the first generation blockchains, you know, they all had to make compromises somewhere along the way. You know, if you take proof of work as an example, um, proof of work, you have, you know, miners, the miners are all, you know, solving puzzles to confirm the next block. You know, you can have a trade off where the risk of collision and network partition is higher the faster your blocks confirm. It's lower the longer they take. So, you know, in Bitcoin, it takes 10 minutes to confirm a transaction. Um, so that's obviously not very fast. And, you know, at the same time, it is decentralized and, you know, uh, at least the Bitcoin network is is proven to be quite resilient and secure. The way Algorand works is actually uh, almost opposite of how you know most of the other platforms uh, run. And we were really the first public permissionless proof of stake network. Um, virtually all the other proof of stake networks are centralized in some way um, or have some way of voting in block proposers, which are, are somewhat small in number. And what Algorand does is unique in that it uses um, a novel form of cryptographic sortition, i.e. a lottery. And for all the people who are online, uh, every block, one liter is selected at random uh, and you run a lottery on your computer, it takes about a millisecond and it's over. So it's computationally trivial. We're not using a lot of power. One person wins uh, as the block proposer and about a thousand people are selected at random as the block validators that confirm that that block is, is okay or not. And if you get a majority, there's only one way to get a majority. Uh, it's either thumbs up, thumbs down. 
and the votes are all um, circulated effectively around the same time that the block is circulated around the network. So the reality is an Algorand transactions confirm in a few seconds. They're immediately final because there's no way to, to fork um, the platform. And, you know, in terms of attack vectors, uh, like, you know, 51% attacks and whatnot, the problem is you don't know because the, neither the, the block validators or the block proposer are known uh, until the block is circulated. Um, there's no way to know who to attack until it's too late, because once you find out who to attack, the block is over, you've moved on to the next block. And so that's the, the fact that that proposal and the, the confirmation happen in secret and those people don't communicate with each other um, make Algorand very resilient. And it also means that as the number of users on the network grows, security you know, grows along with it. And because the committees are relatively you know, similar size, there isn't any real performance hit to growing that. So it's, it really scales, could scale to billions of users, won't really change the performance characteristics, and it becomes more secure as more users are added to it. And so that, you know, I think that sounds simple, but the, you know, computer science behind, you know, how the inner workings there and, and how you implement that are actually quite complex. And to sort of your, one of your previous points. You know, the way we think about it is we have a research team that's about a dozen people. You know, they think they think about, you know, new advancements, new tech that they're working on. And then, you know, the product and engineering team, you know, works closely to sort of understand what they're working on, but then ultimately we'll go and, uh, and implement it. And, and we have kind of a, a process that we go through to identify what we think are the most meaningful updates that we can create. So now you have the latest release, Algorand 2.0, which, as I understand it, has uh, three components to it, ASA, Atomic Transfers, and ASC1. Could you explain those improvements, new features, functionality that's been enabled, and why those things now in the, in the sequence of the rollout? Sure. Platform's been live for about a year, you know, now a little over a year, and has performed very well. We've had, you know, no real... Uh, technical technical issues uh, during that time. And, you know, one of the things um, that we felt was that it was important to just deliver the consensus protocol, you know, effectively as originally conceived to, you know, be able to get that into the market. But when, you know, we really looked at, you know, what are some of the use cases that people are, are leveraging blockchain for, you know, tokenization of assets, creation of fungible, non-fungible tokens, securities, really being able to instantiate digital assets in any form. And, you know, there's a number of different ways that the people look to do that. You know, the second is once you have assets, you know, you want to be able to exchange them. And so atomic transfers are really the ability to swap an asset in a single transaction. Uh, and you can do that both a single asset with a single party, multiple assets, multiple parties. And we think that that's sort of uh, as, you know, the types of financial products and assets that people bring on online grow more complex, that'll be increasingly important. And then the third is, you know, people need to control under which conditions uh, assets change hands and build applications around it. And that's really what the smart contract layer is for. Now, one of the things that's quite different about Algorand is that in most other platforms, one, you would need to create smart contracts to do you know, any of the things I just described. The second is the smart contract platforms, you know, in Ethereum, as an example, are Turing complete, um, which is very flexible and very innovative, but also means there's a lot of 
potential pitfalls around security and has led, you know, we've seen a lot of smart contracts that have bugs in them lead to, you know, loss of money either through a bug or through theft. And, and, you know, I think there's a lot of issues there. So the concept behind Algorand is that one, once you have a performant, secure, foundational layer, i.e. the consensus protocol, and you also need a set of primitives in layer one that really take the safety and security and scalability of the protocol itself, but make it very easy um, for people to you know, go about their business. So as an example, if you want to create an asset in Algorand, our standard asset framework allows you to post a transaction, your asset is created, uh, you can manage it from there versus having to create a whole series of smart contracts and, and you know, understand what's different. And, you know, that also means that every smart contract is code compatible with every asset. And we put a high priority, I would say, not only on um, trying to simplify and make secure a lot of the common things that the people want to deploy on the blockchain, um, but also make the developer experiences very similar, I'm sorry, very simple. And I think that that's a sort of a critical thing to consider because for us, um, the focus is somewhat less on the 100,000 100, or so developers that are already focused on blockchain today and more focused on the 19 million that aren't building for blockchain today. And I think our conclusion is that, you know, like with other technologies, as you know, these platforms move into the mainstream, simplicity of developer experiences becomes incredibly important. And simplicity of end user experiences is, is really important too. And so uh, I think if you look, Algorand 2.0 was, you know, a big step towards, you know, looking at once you've solved the consensus protocol and the trilemma problem, you know, what are sort of the next set of elements that the people would look for as they're starting to, you know, deploy more scaled applications? Um, and that's what really led to Algorand 2.0. Um, we actually have another release, Algorand 3.0, that'll most likely be um, adopted by the network sometime toward the end of July uh, that adds state to uh, our smart contracts. So now you'll be able to have long running smart contracts uh, and adds a host of other features. So, you know, we're excited to continue to innovate and, and you know, build on the platform that's there. And um, I think what's even more exciting now is there's, you know, other people building on the platform. It's not just, you know, one group of people that are doing it. When you're talking about the kind of uh, smart contract functionality, what's the linkage between that and the collaboration you're doing with Blockstack around clarity? Sure. Okay. So the I think our point of view is, while it's very important to have a set of primitives in layer one, that's not possible to do everything under the sun in layer one. There are needs for long running applications. There's a need for general purpose smart contracts. And we actually just recently released our architecture for um, layer two general purpose smart contracts. And at the same time, one of the things we looked at are, you know, what are the characteristics that you would look for in a general purpose smart contract language. Um, how do you make sure it's very simple? How do you make sure it's very deterministic so that people can still, you know, stay out of trouble? And, you know, Glockstack is a project that we've known for a long time and, and know Muneeb well. And, you know, when Silvio and his team started thinking about the underlying characteristics that they'd be looking for to go along with the smart contract platform they were designing, uh, they realized that, you know, the work that um, had been done on Clarity was, you know, very philosophically simple, similar to what they would come up with themselves. And I think that's sort of spawned a, a little bit, you know, well, first of all, we think it's a very meaningful partnership and uh, we hope other people adopt Clarity 
as well. But I think one of the real exciting parts is that, you know, on top of the rest of the things we've talked about, we really believe that it's going to be a multi-chain world. Uh, People will use different chains for different purposes. And, you know, really a, a tech stack will start to emerge. And we don't think it makes sense that people have to learn different tools, different programming languages for every chain they want to use. We think that, you know, you need to be able to interoperate with them. And so, you know, I, I think you could see that somebody would use, you know, a storage specific chain or tools, if there's identity tools or other things that people like. And so we're, we're happy to kind of see those that start to evolve. But we think the idea of having a very simple smart contract language like Clarity, where you can then ultimately deploy different parts of your application to different chains makes a lot of sense and definitely can help in that goal of encouraging more mainstream adoption of blockchain platforms. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really encouraging to see actually two different projects collaborating on on growing the talent, talent pool, as you said, and working on interoperability and you know, the modularity of being able to use different elements of each other's stack. So in that universe, where does Algorand sit alongside other protocols? So one of the challenges with layer one projects is they're so generalizable that where do you start, right? Which of the use cases do you start in as a team? Where do you allocate your attention and your resource? How have you defined that that strategy? Is it that you are just responding to demand or is it something that's a bit more kind of structured? Sure. Well, I think in part, there's definitely we've seen demand in the market. And I think what we're encouraged by there is, you know, there are a variety of applications where people either have built scaled applications, but had to do so in a permissioned way, or they have more established businesses and are looking to deploy something that would be pretty much scaled uh, on day one and, you know, really need to think about the underlying tech. But, uh, you know, there are certainly some themes that I think have sort of come to the forefront for us in terms of ways we're seeing people use the platform. And, you know, one is DeFi applications, uh, open finance applications. And, you know, our point of view on that is, you know, in order to encourage more applications and growth, uh, there was a real need for stable coins. Uh, we just announced this morning, or Circle just announced this morning, that they're bringing a version of USDC uh, to Algorand. You know, prior to that, Tether launched a version um, of their stable coin on Algorand. Uh, and we've had a number of others like Meld, which is a gold backed digital currency, uh, Monarium, which is you know regulated e money in the, in the EU. So I think we have a, a sort of a growing um, and interesting set of assets that people can use, can build their DeFi applications around. And we see that as like a very interesting market, um, but still, you know, relatively nascent one relative to the size of like the global financial services industry. You know, the, the second area that, that we've seen that's, you know, quite interesting is our more traditional financial network, uh, more traditional financial companies, whether banks or payment networks. And um, for anyone who's interested, Silvio recently published a paper on cochains, which is Algorand's um, take on permissioned networks, i.e. people's ability to deploy their own private networks. One of the unique features about our coaching architecture is that uh, it still allows people to take assets that have been created on their chain and transact with them on the public network using atomic swaps and other other tools, um, or 
use the public network to send that asset to somebody else's private network. And, you know, again, we feel very strongly that public permissionless networks will win out in the end. But at the same time, there's also regulatory requirements and other things that, um, you know, certain institutions just, you know, can't easily get around. And so, you know, we want to encourage them to do things the way that they're they're comfortable, um, but do it in a way that doesn't preclude the possibility of, of using the public network later. So that's sort of a second. And then, you know, third and emerging market that we see are uh, central bank digital currencies. We recently announced that the Marshall Islands is building their sovereign currency, the SOV, on top of the Algorand platform. And I'm really excited about that. And, you know, I, I think taking a step back, we think that, you know, there will be retail, you know, currencies that people use. There'll be bank to bank ones. Um, there's going to be a lot of different variations that I think we see emerge in the space. And you need to have slightly different you know, technical approaches that meets the needs of those different constituents. I think especially if you're going to generate network effects and, you know, ultimately have a place where a lot of those assets live. And, you know, that's what we think is is um, a real opportunity right now. And so, you know, you're one of the rare projects that I guess straddles the full spectrum of, let's crudely call it CFI, DeFi, and I guess, you know, some, something in between. There's a school of thought that says, you know, DeFi really is just a, a permissionless sandbox it's where innovation happens and it can only scale to a certain point before it gets co-opted or needs to integrate into the existing financial system and what what's your view do you think that DeFi can replace or eat you know elements of the existing financial system or is it always just going to be this fringe thing where crazy innovation happens uh I don't know. I don't think it's a, you know, but I don't think that the suggestion that it's, you know, always has to be a fringe thing makes sense to me. I I think that it's definitely a a nascent market, but it's one that definitely is generating a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of novel ideas that don't exactly exist in the traditional world. And I I think that that's where, you know, disruptive uh, ideas and applications will happen. And I think if, you know, the world has shown us anything over time is that, you know, capital seeks yield. And I think to the extent that um, some of these DeFi applications can generate higher yield. At first, it's going to be people who are more entrenched in the space. But as the user experiences improve, you know, if you look at some of the big consumer applications that have, have picked up steam over the past years, you know, if you, if you can get that right, you know, I think some of these applications could move pretty quickly to disrupt more traditional parts of the financial system. So we'll see how it plays out. On the, on the flip side, the traditional financial system has a lot of scale. They have regulation sorted out. I think there's, you know, probably a middle ground that, that gets found somewhere. Um, you know, I, I think it'll be, no matter what, interesting to see how this plays out. And, I, you know, I, just to get a little perspective, you know, go back 20 something years, uh, I think when everybody was connecting to the Internet by via uh, via dial up modem and you had to wait like five minutes for a banner ad to load, it would have been a little bit hard to imagine, you know, sitting in the back of the car watching Netflix on your like cell phone. So I think you know, a lot can happen over the next, you know, decade or two. Um, but I, I think what, you know, certainly is the case is that financial systems and the plumbing of the financial networks is likely to see as much innovation, if not more, over that time period that we've seen in the last 20 years with the internet. And I think if, you know, you kind of think about that, you know, I, I suspect at the tail end of it, you know, the world's going to seem like a pretty different place than it does today. So, I mean, linked to that, I'm going to ask the impossible question, which is, Assuming all this plays out and, you know, all these kind of primitives are in place and we manage to start onboarding the 99% of developers and as a consequence, people start building businesses and um, sustainable businesses on top of it all. 
where does it all lead to, at least in the context of Algorand and, and the vision that its management and, and founder has? What's the big picture view? And uh, I guess, what, what do we think could be possible um, that in, in, a world, in a future world that isn't currently possible today? Well, I, I'll answer your question a little bit different than you asked it. I think one, for sure, it's the case that there will be a handful of platforms that are, are winners in the space and become the underpinning for um, a lot of the innovation that's that's likely to happen over the, the coming years. So I think from our standpoint, you know, we obviously would like Algorand to be one of the, the platforms um, that wins there. And I think if I think, you know, we're going to keep doing um, the best we can to uh, encourage you know, adoption over the, the early part. I'd say the the kind of longer answer to your question, though, is we don't really know because I think success here means what's already happening continues to happen, which is more people are developing tools in the ecosystem, more people are building applications on top of the platform. And I think, you know, one of the, you know, really interesting elements of decentralized systems is they tend to take on a little bit of a life of their own. And so, you know, I think that that's a, a good sign. And, and we've been really happy with the engagement we're starting to see and, you know, people making contributions and all the projects sort of building on and around uh, the platform. But I, you know, I, I think that, you know, definitely sort of a, a likely outcome here is one, there'll be a handful of platforms that you know, sort of help form the basis of, you know, a sort of new set of, of financial rails uh, that exist. And I think the upside for that being done in a decentralized way is that about a third of the world's population doesn't have a bank account today. And investments are very complicated uh, for people, you know, and often historically they've gone through multiple layers of managers and, you know, transaction fees account for, you know, over 5% of global GDP. I think there's a, a lot of waste in the system that can, one, be changed, but two, you know, there's a lot of people who simply aren't empowered by the way, you know, the systems work today. A lot of people that don't have reason to believe in their government's ability to manage the currency or financial system. And I think one of the things that decentralized systems do a very good job of is enabling people that have no reason to trust each other and no real legal or financial recourse if something goes wrong to trust in, in those systems. And I think in a world where commerce is increasingly global and, you know, there's an increasing number of people that are looking for new ways to um, feel a connection to their to how they communicate value to other people and, and how they make investments. I think that that's, you know, th there's a big social element to this as well. It's not just about kind of money. And so I, I think that that will be what's really interesting. But I think if you play this out a few years, I, I think that people's relationship with sort of transactions and money and how they think about it, you know, will very likely be different than, than the way it is today. Great, Steve. Well, look, thanks so much for coming on. Where can people find you on the internet? What's your Twitter handle and stuff like that? My Twitter handle is at Steve Kokinos. The Algorand's Twitter handle is uh, Algorand, at Algorand. Algorand Foundation is at Algo Foundation. And suggest anybody who's interested in learning more about the project, uh, go to algorand.com. Uh, we have pointers there. Uh, for anybody who's interested in building on the platform, there's developer.algorand.org, which is a community site where we keep, uh, where there are you know, developer tools and all sorts of information on, on getting started. But um, yeah, it was really great talking to you and appreciate you having me on. Yeah, and it's worth saying there's uh, $50 million set aside in grant funding. So for people that are looking to um, innovate on top of the platform, there is capital there to support early stage startups as well. Um, Steve, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. 
If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. Thank you.